Welcome to Long Thread Media Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publisher of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms Magazine. Find us at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Treenway Silks. Treenway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons. At www.treenwaysilks.com, you'll discover a rainbow of colors, thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Treenway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Treenway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Linda Ligon, sitting in today for Ann Merrill. Joining me is Linda Teller-Pete, a fifth-generation Navajo weaver and co-author with her sister Barbara of two books that are dear to my heart. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. So, you have a habit or you have a way of introducing yourself by way of your family clans, and I, I love hearing that. Can you do that for us? Absolutely. Um, and this is our, uh, a typical way of, of uh, most Navajos to introduce themselves. Um, I will tell you what my, my, uh, my mother's clans are, my father, my uh, paternal grandfather, and then my maternal grandfather. And that way people have an idea of how to um, address me if they meet me. And, um, and it's a way for us to establish uh, kinship. And so I always start with uh, Yate, which is hello in Navajo. Yate, she ya Linda Teller Peaton, she Tapahin Shlanto, she Lini Bashishin, she Nale ya Hanangahni, Doshi che ya ha, Tlashchi, what else than initially, Betasatan and Yasanasha. So what I said was, uh, my name is Linda Teller Pete. I am of the Edgewater Clan, which is my mother's clan. Tuohedlini, uh, which means two rivers that flow together. My father's clan, Hatnalahni, uh, is one who walks around. That's my um, paternal grandfather, and then Tlashti, which is Red Bottoms Clan, and that's my mother's uh, uh, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather. And then I just said I'm originally from the Tuka Hills area of the Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. That's how we introduce ourselves. I, I think it's beautiful. And I've, I tried to figure out what that would sound like if I were doing it. And I, it was a little it was a little awkward. I think you have a better way. But you, you grew up in the traditional world of the two Gray Hills trading post. But you were constantly exposed to what we would, might call the white world by the traders and the customers who came there. And then you went away to boarding school for, I think, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And how did that affect you as you grew up? How did that affect the choices you made after you finished, you know, school? Um, sure. Well, you know, my, my father was a, a trader at the Tucker Hills Trading Post for 35 years. Um, he was there long before I was even born. And so I think he was there like in the 40s or something. And um, he worked there until 1980. 
something. But uh, we grew up uh, seasonally at the trading post. And there we would get buses and, and, and you know, carloads of uh, tourists that came from all around the world, um, from England, Japan, Germany, you know, you name it, they, they all came to see the famed trading post and to look at rugs and things like that. And so um, my siblings and I, and I'm the last one um, of uh, uh, five siblings. And um, so my older siblings had jobs, you know, my, my, my uh, brother Ernie helped man the store. Um, we helped pump gas. Um, the trading post was also a place where people could buy livestock. So it was up to us to feed the, um, the cows and sheep and whatever was in the corral and, uh, to hunt down chickens if they got lost. Uh, you know, these were jobs that we had, but the most exciting part of a week was when we got the busload of people. We never knew where they were from. You know, we would hear, um, uh, foreign languages and, um, uh, that helped us get exposed to, you know, people from around the world. And we picked up a lot of English by that point. So when I did go to boarding school and uh, most everyone got picked when they were about six years old and uh, you're put into this boarding school where you're only allowed to go home at least once or twice a year. But while we were there, you know, we had more exposure to English. And so I think it was easier for me to learn, um, you know, learn faster at school. And um, but one thing that my mother insisted upon is when we came home for summers is that we spoke Navajo and that we wove. And so those were two constant things that she really insisted upon. And I'm really glad for that because the sporting school stuff, really stifled a lot of people. Um, you know, it, it created these um, open areas in their linkages to Navajo weaving. But Barbara and I, we are now trying to relink those lost linkages for a lot of our Navajo students. I think your mother must have been a very, very wise woman. Would you agree with that? I would I would agree. And the funny thing, too, is that my mother spoke Navajo, you know, all the time. And um, and when you spoke to her, she would gently um, correct you, you know, your your grammar. She would uh, correct present tense, past tense and, you know, all that stuff. And she was real gentle about it. She wasn't one of those. You know, I, I hear a lot of horror stories about young people trying to relearn their languages and their families just laughing at them for not pronouncing it correctly. But my mother never did that. And so she was really intent on making sure that we spoke proper Navajo. What we didn't realize as we were kids was that she was also learning English. And so, uh, you know, when, when my siblings and I, we wanted to plan something, we thought we were being secretive by talking in English. And all this time she could understand it. <laughs> That's a great story. So speaking of language, there's this Navajo concept, and I'm not going to say it correctly, of hojo. How do you say that? And and what is it? Hojo. Yeah, hojo is like hojo. Yeah, it's an everyday term that um, we all need to be mindful of our journey in, in life. And every day, um, every day is a day that you should be learning something. Every day is a day that you should be teaching something. You should be mindful of your neighbors. You should be mindful of your home life um, and try to balance it out, you know. And uh, hojo just means 
you um, uh, take care of your relatives. Um, it could mean that you are, um, uh, you know, a productive person in your community by taking part, like in helping teach people, maybe even to speak Navajo or to be of service to your community. And so Hujong is, it's a term for us to walk in harmony. And, um, and that, you know, it, it means your everyday life. It just doesn't mean special occasion. It doesn't mean that on Sundays we practice Hujong. We practice Hujong 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week. Is it harder for you, do you think, because you have a foot in two different worlds? I mean, you really do. You, yeah. I. It, it is hard because when I travel, I get exposed to a lot of uh, mishaps. You know, missed planes, uh, uh, delayed flights, and I'm not very uh, patient. So yeah, my hojong goes out the window when there's a traffic snarl, and uh, and then I have to atone for that, you know, later on because um, yeah, it, it, living in the city, you get you, you um, expect things to go faster. Um, you know, we expect uh, deliveries to be on time. We expect um, certain things to happen within a time frame, and that doesn't happen when. I'm back home. Like w- when my mother was alive, I would, um, I would go back to her home, and if I was in a hurry about something, she would just kind of like look at me and say, "Why are you in a hurry?" You know, and and that's because we live in the city and we we are uh, uh, watching the clock basically, and uh, we do certain things. But uh, back home, there's a time for everything. And um, also in the world of weaving, um, uh, there is a time clock for for beginning weavers, I should say, because most beginning weavers, they have protocols like they can't uh, uh, weave at night. Um, They can't weave when there's rain. Um, So there's a lot of protocols to for beginning weavers. And that is basically on a cycle or, you know, time time frame. I didn't know that uh, about the the timing or the the rules against. I mean, you weave all night long. <laughs> How does that? Work? Of course, you're not a beginner. <laughs> no, and, and that's why I tried to make the distinction between a beginning weaver and weavers like my sister and me. Um, we usually have our blessings done once a year. And uh, we've missed it for a couple of years now because of COVID. But uh, we have our um, medicine person that we go to, and uh, he blesses our tools, our looms, and um, you know. And, and he always tells us um, that there are certain people that are critical about Navajo weavers weaving at night or doing all this stuff. And he said, "You guys are at a, a different point in your career." where we refer to ourselves as spider woman and spider, uh, you know, like a typical spider, it hunts at night and it makes its web at night. And so uh, we're kind of in a different, uh, we're on a different level um, than a beginner weaver. And so we work best at night and uh, our teaching is done during the day. And so it balances out. I mean, the, uh, Barbara and I weave for competition. We do two art shows a year, and we take commissions on the rest of the uh, year. And right now, I'm about four commissions behind. 
Oh. And so, um, yeah, so during during COVID, uh, a lot of the projects that we were working on were put on the back burner. And now it seems as if uh, since the fall, like uh, last October 2022, things started gearing up pretty fast. So now we have multiple openings this year and uh, we've got to travel to all of them and we're continuing work on the programming and things like that. I, I know you have an incredibly busy schedule. Now, you you worked you worked in the what we're going to call is it okay to call it the white world? It's the Belagana world. That's fine. Yeah, Belagana world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Belagana means white, right? Except you know, I'm kind of beige. I'm not not very white. <laughs> um, but you worked in that world professionally for quite a few years before you pivoted back to you know really doing weaving, making weaving your life. And but now your weavings are extremely fine and perfect. Was it hard to get your skills built back up when you had it on the back burner for so long? Um, well, before I get into that, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that um, whenever we have a mixed class, we have like brand new Navajo weaving students in our class, and then we have our continuing non-native students in class, and they all seem to our Navajo students all seem to. Uh, weave quicker, weave better than our continuing students that have been with us maybe five, five or more years. And what we always hear is ancestral memory, you know, and I believe that's true. Um, even for our Navajo students that haven't uh, woven a rug before, they seem to have this intuitive um, uh, skills and I, we haven't met a whole lot that have have not have had that skill. Um, and my sister and I have been teaching for 22 years. And uh, by far, I think maybe there may have been about two that really didn't stick with it and didn't really enjoy the process of weaving. Um, but most are really their intent on relinking uh, their weaving history Um and we're pretty proud of that. And so when I first started weaving, I started weaving about six years old and I wove every summer that I was home. And um, and I always thought that my cousins were allowed to play outside all the time, but they had to weave as well. And so it wasn't until we were adults that we were we would talk about, you know, um, how much time we wove. Now, I don't really think our mom made us weave like five hours a day. I think it was like 20 minutes. <laughs> but to a kid, you know, that just seems forever because you want to play outside. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I uh, when I went away to school, my, my mom made sure I took a loom with me. And she said, you've always had a loom, you know, whether you were at it or not, but you always had it. And so she did the same for, for my sister, Barbara, when she moved away from home. Um, my mom made sure that Barbara had a loom. And um, so I would kind of dabble with it every now and then. But in college, um, I was a little bit embarrassed because for I thought at the time that uh, weaving was old people's work. Oh. And I I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm a young, I'm in college, I shouldn't be weaving. And but it, it was a um it was a skill that helped pay for college. And, um, and my mother uh, 
you know, she really did her part in making sure that I, I finished four years and it was all due to her weaving. And so once I graduated, I said, oh, I'm not going to weave anymore because I don't I don't like the marketing part. But I always kept one in my closet and I can track the days that I wove because those were hard days at work. If I got into some kind of, um, uh, you know, it, situation and I came home and I was a little bit tense about it, I would take out my weaving because that weaving calmed me down and it made me think about not just the weaving itself, but what it meant. Like I'm close to my mom. I'm using her tools. I'm close to my grandmother. I'm using her baton. I'm close to my sister because I want my beat to sound like hers because she's very industrious. So I have all these little things that remind me of who I am and what I should be proud of. And, um, and so when I finally quit my job, my day job in 2010 and turned to weeding full time, it wasn't as if I had to re, you know, relearn everything because I had been keeping it up this entire time. I would, I'm not as a pro- prolific weaver as Barbara because she can churn out a lot of, <laughs> a lot of really perfect, perfect tapestries. And, and it took me a while to kind of catch up to that. And, uh, I used to call her my wool fairy because whenever I got into trouble, I would have to take it home. And then she would meet me and then she would fix it. And then I'd say, oh, my wolf fairy appeared, you know, but now I'm, I have to be my own wolf fairy. I can, <laughs> I had to learn how to, you know, fix broken strings and do all this stuff that, you know, she, she uses her little skills for finesse work. Yeah, that, I, I love that idea of the wolf fairy. <laughs> I could use one of those myself. So you you teach uh, mixed classes classes with Navajo and and with Beligana and and then you teach mm-hmm. just classes of your own people and how how do you manage those things differently because I mean how do you get around the idea of you know like cultural appropriation or sure you know? um, we started out teaching uh, a group of our collectors. And it, and it was a request by by a few collectors to to because they wanted to see how weeding was done, and so Barbara and I put together a small class, and it, you know it wasn't really about step one through step ten how to weave. The class was more about culture. They wanted to know why we wove, um, you know, what we knew of our history. So it basically became a cultural class with like weaving techniques kind of thing. And then as people learn what we did, there were more and more requests for us to teach. And so right from the get go, Barbara and I basically said, there are things that we are not going to teach but it took us a long time to get there because the, every class was different. Most of the things that we wanted the, um, our, our non-native audience to learn was that not everything can be taught. Um, they are there to receive the education about Navajo culture. They, um, you know, they, they can take the techniques that we taught to their own type of weaving, which of them did that. We weren't there to teach them to become Navajo weavers. Um, Some, you know, took to it like a duck to water. 
uh, like it's been missing all their lives or so. And we have uh, probably some of our students have been with us for 16 or more years. And, uh, you know, they just come to our class and they just love to hang out. And we keep telling them, you don't have to come to class anymore because we're friends. <laughs> you don't, yeah, you don't have to pay us to hang out with us. And so, <laughs> but um, it's been a nice group. And, um, uh, and we did get some blowback from, from people saying you, you shouldn't be teaching um, Navajo weaving to non-natives, but that's not exactly what we're doing. We're, teaching history. We're teaching um, uh, a lot of people want to know where to donate money. They want to know how they can be helpful. And so we're creating allies. And if I encounter an issue that I cannot solve on my own, for instance, um, we had uh, at the Estes Park Wolf Festival, they hired a non-native teacher to teach Navajo weaving. And I didn't think that was right. So with me, with just me uh, making a phone call, doing an email didn't work. So I rallied up the troops. I rallied up all our allies. They sent emails, they made phone calls, and we got them to change it, yeah. you know? And, and so this is the reason why we want allies yeah. and we will continue to teach um, history because all the history books, a lot of them are wrong. Uh, a lot of information about Navajo weaving is wrong. And, um, and a lot of those are just regurgitated stuff from, you know, out of date books kind of thing. Yeah. And so we are teaching people to, um, the, the correct history. Yeah. And, um, and in return, they want to be helpful. And they've helped a lot of our, our Navajo students with the purchases of looms and tools and providing wool. Um, they, you know, and during COVID, the, it, this was a group of people that just wanted to help. And, you know, we told them the, the sites to donate for uh, elder care and to um, give water to the people who lived out in the rural areas, um, provide firewood like for um, this fall or and winter. It's been it's been pretty snowy. And so there's an organization out there called uh, Chis for Che. That's a, a donation place that people can make and uh, they provide firewood for for our elderly people. So. It's just not a weaving class. It's a cultural immersion class. Yeah. Well, you're really creating communities. Can, would you just make a wild guess at how many people you have taught over the years? Uh, I would say on the average, um, before COVID, we probably did about 40 to 60 new people a year. And then um, there's been a drop off because of, you know, we, we haven't been able to have good classes. Um, and a lot of these classes are returning people. And uh, so I, you know, we've been teaching for 22 years. So a few times, let's just say 40 per year, 40 times 20 is 800. 800. Probably push. See, that's not really that much. Oh, it's a lot. I don't I think mean, it's that no, much. No, I think it's a lot. If you think how, how what they learn and what they're what you've exposed them to ripples out into their lives and into their contacts you know yeah it's it's incredibly i mean it's it's really made a difference i think but beyond you know, beyond the teaching i mean you and you and barbara have a really 
robust teaching schedule, but you also have a ton of other projects that you're involved in. Both of you do. Do you want to talk a little bit about, well, like, okay, the Textile Society of America, you have a special place on the board there. And I wonder, you know, what what are your goals for that? Um, well, I am in my second, second, third. This is my the beginning of the third year yeah. of my appointment, uh, my elected appointment mm-hmm. of um, uh, as a board member of Equity and Inclusion. And so, for the first two years, I've just been trying to figure out how TSA works, the Textile Society mm-hmm. of America, um, and we've had some adjustments with the board members and everything. You know, in anything, there's a big old learning uh, curve. Mm-hmm to um, get through. So first two years has has just been that. This year, I I actually have a committee and it's the Equity and Inclusion Committee. And and we are going to try to make some changes. We have an anti-racism agenda. Uh, We're going to do some programming around that. Um, And, you know, we haven't even had our first meeting yet, but at least we have the... um, people that are named to the group. Mm -hmm. And so um, after our first meeting, we'll decide like what kind of programming we want to introduce, how we want to go about um, uh, implementing the anti-racism development. So that's what we want to do there. Well, and you're, you're the first person to hold that position. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's a new initiative for the organization and it seems really like a really strong move. Yeah. Yes, yes, and I'm I'm pretty uh, grateful for that. And uh, and right away, I started. I got immersed in a bunch of different committees, um, programming, membership, um, I, uh, one of the scholarship readings, um, uh, nominations. Um, and so I, I'm on 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 these different uh, committees and thank goodness um, programming and membership merge so that uh, I have less meetings to go to. Uh, But now that I have some committee members, I can delegate uh, some of the uh, meetings that I need to go to and, and, and be able to concentrate on my outside projects. And there are a lot of them. Well, let's, (laughs) let's talk about that. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of them. What's what's on your list? Oh, well, I, well, first of all, uh, last year I was named um, the Loose uh, Foundation's Indigenous Scholar. And so it's a fellowship and it's for two years. So I started that project um, last last January and it will end December of this year. And in my fellowship, one of the projects that um, I took on is to turn the How to Weave a Navajo Rug into um, just the written instructions into Navajo. And I'm working with a really, really phenomenal young lady from uh, Salt Lake City. Her name is Clarissa Yazzie. And she's a fluent speaker. She knows how to spell. (laughs) (laughs) She knows how how to write, which I don't. I mean, I can speak Navajo. I don't know how to write it. And I don't know how to, um, uh, read it either. Yeah, I can kind of muddle through some, but I'm not that great at it. So in my project, I had to hire uh, a language expert and she um, uh, she's going to translate um, uh, the instructions. And we just zoomed about it. And, and I told her, I don't expect a translation word for word because that's not how Navajo works. Navajo works on 
um, expressive um, action. Uh, you know, the sentence are full of action and they can be animated. It's not linear like the English language. And uh, so for us, we can tackle so many things in with fewer words. So we talked about that and it was really cool that she's also a weaver. So she really gets the, uh, the, the instructions part. Great. And so that's one thing I'm working on. Well, just let's um, back and then, up a second and, and be sure. clear. This is how to weave a Navajo rug and other lessons from Spider Woman. And it's a book you and Barbara wrote together. And what's that been, four years ago, three years ago? Uh, yes. 2019, um, I think, yeah. is its publication date. Actually, it got released during COVID because we weren't able to do a lot of signings because of COVID. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I think it was 2020. Yeah. So it was an important book for the English speaking world, but now you're taking it to your people. And that just seems like an incredible initiative. I, I love, I love that you're doing that. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really important that um, uh, we have another all Navajo class that's coming up with the Herd Museum in May of this year. And we'll probably have a group of between 20 and 25 um, new Navajo uh, people. And we hopefully we'll have some of the book translated by then. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just start kind of teaching the words like for looms and tools and wool and that kind of stuff and just start very basic and then see how, how it goes. Um, later on in the summer, we hope to have the spoken version of it and get it recorded. So it's going to be an interesting project for us to finish this year. It'll be a, it'll be huge. And, and yeah, getting it into, into a spoken version seems like would be very important because not all of your, not all of your people would, would be able to read Navajo, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can. Yes, or and even write it. Exactly. I can't. Can. Yeah, so it's... I can sound it out. Yeah, no, that's a big, big, big project. Uh, what else is going on? I think you've got another thing or two in the... Uh, yes, we have... Uh, Barbara and I started working with um, Hadley Jensen, who was at the time doing her uh, postdoctoral work with the Bard graduate center in New York. And then she also started working um, part-time over at the American Museum of Natural History. And so she invited us to come and uh, go through the Hollister collection. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we were looking at rugs and at the time we were talking about putting an exhibition together mm-hmm. and we needed some money. And, you know, she, she, I think she wrote a couple of proposals and stuff. And just right when we were getting really into the project, COVID hit. So we put it on the back burner. And then as recent as October of last year, it started moving pretty fast. So now our exhibition is over at the Bard Graduate Center, and there's going to be some programming surrounding it, like uh, we have a symposium for one day. And Barbara and I are the first speakers that will come on, and then we have other uh, Navajo people that will participate. Uh, Raphael Begay, who's a photographer, Darby um, Overstreet, it, she does graphics work. She's she's done some incredible work on uh, some land land sites like the Shiprock Rock and the Winder Rock and all that kind of stuff, and and infuse them with uh, textile uh, motifs. 
really nice stuff. Uh, Connor Chi, who's a, a Navajo pianist, he wrote, uh, he was commissioned to uh, do some special music for us. Um, Kevin Aspis will discuss wedge weaves. Terrell Tabaha, well, he's one of our uh, Bradford Elliott um, Textile Award from TSA. He's going to come in and do his thing. Uh, Larissa Naz will uh, do a presentation. Um, so we have a lot of, you know, programming wow. just for that one day. Wow, you do. Yeah. That, that is so exciting. And, and there you go flying off to New York. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So we'll be there for a really long time. And um, uh, so that exhibition is called Shape by the Loop. We finally got some um, monetary support from the National Endowment of the Arts, NEA. And so this exhibition will become a traveling museum, a traveling show. It will go to uh, Cooperstown at the Finmore uh, next, and then we hope it will go to the Textile Museum. And then we're hoping for one Midwest city that will take on the uh, exhibition. So that's what we're going to do with that. And yeah, so it's, it's been, it's been a lot of work and it's been fun. Um, and next we're, we're, I'm working with, um, D.Y. Begay, who's another uh, Navajo weaver. We, um, we were asked by the, um, Toledo Art Museum to, uh, help curate some, um, shows, uh, a show, um, and we got to pick the textiles from the Crane Collection book that D.Y. and I participated in with uh, Laurie Webster and Louise Driver. So uh, D.Y. and I, I think we picked 15 textiles each. Uh, we're doing the labeling and it's going to go on a rotating show. I think they'll show like three textiles at a time. And I think it's going to be like a two-year project or something. So, you know, D.Y. and I have done a lot of writing and we've done, uh, uh, we're helping with some of the, um, uh, uh, I think we get to do an essay as well uh, with the labels. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, um, that's a really good project. Yeah. And then the la- uh, the next one is I'm working on an exhibition with, again, with uh, Hadley Jensen. During COVID, she relocated from New York to Santa Fe, and then she contracted with the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. And so um, they, uh, uh, we have an exhibition called Horizons, Woven Between the Lines, that will open up in uh, July 16th, 2023. And again, this is a show um, curated by... Uh, me and some very, very young, young Navajos. <laughs> and again, some of the people that I mentioned that are going to New York are involved with the project. Raphael, the photographer, Darby, the graphics person, Larissa, um, Terrell, and Kevin. So they're, they all um, are doing some writing for the labels and we have essays and we'll have a catalog for, for that exhibition as well. Well, there'll be a catalog for Shape by the Loom as well. So there's a, a lot that, um, uh, and this is this is so exciting because we normally do not have museum curators giving us the voice and giving us the space right. to do that. Yeah, uh, we've never had that in the past. So it's always been, you know, we get marched out for visual effects, I think, but not not our voices and not our not our thoughts, not our um, participation in curating. 
um, that has never been present. So it's really interesting that the newer curators, they're giving us that space and it's very exciting. It's incredibly exciting. And yeah, I, but, but you know, as I, as I listen to you talk about all these initiatives you're involved in, I think, how do you keep track of it all? <laughs> um, well, it, it, it is really hard because, uh, you know, like I'm working with Hadley on two different exhibitions. And so we're working kind of like with almost the same group of people. But then when I take on other projects, like there may be four Karens that I'm working with. And then it's really hard for me, like, which Karen? <laughs> so it, it gets to... Um, uh, yeah, I get confused all the time. So I'm, I'm, I depend on the project managers to keep me focused. And we've, you know, especially Mayak, uh, what, um, our, our project manager is Lilia um, McKinney, and she is great. She, she like makes sure that we know exactly what we're doing the next day, when it's going to get done and things like that, and what we've decided in, in our meetings. So for all these projects, if you have a really good project manager, makes my life easy. You bet. Yeah, that, no, that's remarkable. And Barbara, I mean, well, the two of you, you've, I'm thinking of the trip you made to Oaxaca. In southern, oh sure. Talk about that a little because that was that was very exciting. Sure. Before I get into that, um, Barbara was just named the United States Artist Fellow. Um, It just got announced this week, and so she she will be um, uh, financially supported by by um, by that fellowship, and we're. We're pretty excited about it. And then also this year, MIAC, the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, has named uh, Barbara and me to be the Legacy Award winners. And that award will be given out in May 26, I think, in Santa Fe. So, you know, we have, I always think that Barbara and I have toiled away in the trenches for 20 some odd years, and we're finally getting (laughs) some recognition. You are rock stars now. (laughs) It's amazing. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Barbara, um, who has just wrapped up a lot of stuff in her weaving career, um, was part is part of uh, this project called Honoring Traditions. And it involves her master weaver and Perfidio Gutierrez, who is a Zapotec master weaver and dyer. And the museum has has, had put together a group of interns to learn um, to, you know, uh, under the tutelage of Perfidio and uh, Barbara. And so each one of them put on workshops. Perfidio did some dyeing um, workshops and then Barbara did some introduction to Navajo weaving. And as a group, um, uh, uh, they were going to take two trips. One was to Oaxaca and then the other one was to the Navajo Nation. And uh, so, and I w- I'm not part of the Honoring Traditions uh, project. Let me just say that. I um, asked for um, uh, an inclusion as an, an observer and they agreed, which has been really, really nice of the uh, project coordinators. And so uh, my husband, Belvin, and I were able to travel with my sister. And that was the other thing, too, is that uh, Barbara um, 
uh, was still recovering from COVID. And so we were afraid for her to be alone without someone keeping her safe. So that was part of the reason why I asked um, the project people to, to see if we could tag along. And once I did that, I put it on my calendar and somehow word of mouth got around. And then I got a phone call from um, Hector uh, Lozano from, he is the director of the uh, Oaxaca Textile Museum. And uh, he said, uh, we Zoomed and he asked me if I could do some programming for him in Oaxaca. And uh, he said, you're traveling here. And um, the thing about it is I can't pay you or, you know, Americans are hard to pay, but would you take a trade? And I was like, oh, man, this is like the old days when there was a trade route from from the United States all the way down to Central and, you know, Central America. And so I agreed. So I got 2.5 kilos of cochineal and 2.5 kilos of indigo as an exchange for me to do some programming for the museum. And we went to Oaxaca and went to Perfidio's uh, village of Teotecla de Valle. And we uh, participated in um, learning how to dye the, the Zapotec way. And we were surprised at how similar the protocols were for collecting plants, for uh, prepping, for, you know, all that stuff. And, and we had so much information to exchange. Um, one caveat was that we don't speak Spanish and we don't speak Zapotec. So it was really hard for us to... Um, you know, know exactly what um, Perfidio's sister Juana and her husband Antonio were saying, because I knew they had a wealth of information. And so just by a lot of gesturing, <laughs> we tried to communicate. And, um, and then when we got to the textile museum and started um, uh, doing some projects with uh, Hector, and um, there was another gentleman with the, um, uh, the botanical gardens, Alejandro Avila. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we started talking about the Zapotecs um, uh, copying Navajo rugs. And and I said, yes, that's a big issue. We don't like it. Um, you know, whenever there's some kind of market for Navajo textiles, there's always some vendor that will bring in um, uh, the Zapotec rugs. And so if there's a knockoff of a two gray, you know, like maybe... Um, two feet by three feet, you know, they look at it and it's like, uh, uh, what about $400 or something. And then they come to our table, two feet by three feet starts at 15,000. And so they go, well, you know, I, I'd rather, you know, take the $400 or whatever. And it's like, you don't even understand that that's not even how, um, how it was woven that there's a lot more protocols that go with our type of weaving. And so one of the things that we said was, um, it wouldn't it be nice if we could tell the Zapotec people about our struggles to make a living as a textile artist. And, um, and if other people do our designs, it's, it makes it harder for us to market our stuff. And, but we didn't want to come across as, you know, like a bull in a china shop either. And so they suggested that maybe we could put on a workshop, but we don't have any money for that. You know, that's a, that's kind of a, a dream for later on is that we hope to um, have some kind of um, 
uh, um, like a little mini conference or something with the Zapotec weavers just to let them know what we go through um, and what our designs mean and that um, maybe we can come to an understanding to honor each of our traditions and have them go back to their natural way of dying and having them do Zapotec designs. And we, we went to two um, archaeological digs and all of their designs are still on some of those buildings. They're, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, yeah. And Porfirio is using those a lot in his work. I think he's yes. setting a great example. Yeah. Yes. So that's, you know, that's a project that we are going to kind of table for a while um, until we find some money for it. Um, and our dream is to take uh, like a team of Navajo weavers with us um, and to take a medicine person with us so that we do this um, with grace and uh, and not be judgmental or, you know, be authoritative. That's not what we want to do because this was done to us. It wasn't any fault of, of, of our weaving. It was all done by corporate greed. And so um, we hope that we take it upon ourselves to reconcile um, our, all, all of our weaving traditions. Yeah. So put that on your list of things to do. I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, just the pace of your life. And the, and the pace of life of so many of the Navajo weavers that we visited when we were traveling together. And it, there's a world of difference. And yet you managed to handle it really well. Uh, it may appear that I handle it well. <laughs> you don't know the, the uh, catastrophic stuff that happens, like, you know, uh, traveling to a class. Uh, Two years ago, traveling traveling to a class in New Hampshire, um, our plane got uh, canceled um, in our mid city flight, and I, you know that was one of the things that you feel as everything is out of your control. And our luggage went somewhere else, and my my uh, traveling loom went somewhere else. All of our classroom stuff was scattered all over, you know, the East Coast, and. <laughs> We finally, um, we had to take the train and it was a 10 hour Johnny Cash, you know, um, uh, a train ride. And we had to stop in every major city from, uh, from uh, Baltimore all the way up to Providence where our stuff went. And so, you know, these things happened and, you know, when things get to um, the first day of class, we always start with a prayer. And I think that's where the mindset of being a teacher um, kicks back in. And all of the other stuff kind of melts away because it's, you know, you're, you're, I'm finally back in my element. I have control. I, I, um, uh, it, you know, I have my teaching materials and even if some stuff didn't arrive, I'm okay with it because my husband's usually there to help me, you know, um, implement something. And so that really works, you know, and, and it takes a team of people um, because it's just not me that is putting on these classes. I have to have my husband help me. I have to have my sister help me. You know, we all help each other. Um, the even traveling details, all of that. And uh, unfortunately, Barbara contracted COVID um, 
April of uh, 2020. Yeah. And, it, and she was one of those long hauler, haul, haulers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it wasn't until the first vaccination that a lot of her symptoms disappeared. And since then, she's been trying to gather strength. And so we didn't travel with her for a long time. And now we're back to traveling with her. And it takes a lot for us to make sure she's safe. And, uh, and, you know, when we're traveling by plane, we put her in first class because, and then drape her off. (laughs) And so, you know, we have to be mindful of, of, um, uh, where we travel with her and, and, um, and, and, think of the next step. So yeah. it's it, it, it's going to be like that for a while, I think. Yeah. Now, you mentioned start, always starting your class with a prayer. You also end your classes in a very special way when, when you have your students cut off. Talk about that ritual. Sure. So um, we, um, we give a little bit of history um, about Uh, you know, the warp that we use. Um, And then when we're warping, we tell our students warping is like preparing for childbirth. Um, You're, you're, um, you're, you're warping and you're setting up your um, loom to be uh, male dominated on top and female dominated on the bottom. And our warps are representative of the rain. Um, the tools that we use all have different meanings. Our batten, our thunderbolts, our uh, combs are an extension of our hand. That's why the teeth of our comb have to be an odd number so that the holy people know that we are weaving because we have five fingers on one hand. And so the comb has to be an extension of your hand. Um, and so there's all these protocols that we set up with. And then when we start our classes, we tell our students that the wool um, is uh, what we refer to as sheep is life. And when we're weaving, we're weaving between the rain and building the earth back in. And so once, um, and we equate everything to child rearing. At the beginning, we do the two by two, which is like the child learning how to walk. Um, you know, people are so afraid to change color or add a little bit of stripe. That's, we can, we say it's the child um, uh, now has their own mind and their opinion. And, they, you know, some of them want to change color, some of them don't. Um, and then th- we introduce the design part, which some people, you know, can do really well, and some people don't do so well. And that's like the teenage years. And that's really hard on some people. And then towards the end, some people do it very quickly. Those are people who just want their kids out of the household. <laughs> some people do it really slow and they don't want their kids to leave. So you can kind of see like the parenting styles as they're weaving. And so when we get done the last day, we take the rug off and then we fold it into four for the four directions. And then we have them cut the tassels. And that's the, uh, that's the part where... Um, the umbilical cord is uh, um, cut off and they take that small piece and they put it to where the, their rug will have a sense of home. Because when um, Navajo babies are born, the umbilical cord that falls off, the parents take that cord and they bury it somewhere on the homeland or they keep it inside the home. And so whether the baby is six years old or 60, they have a sense of home. It's where their umbilical cord is buried. Oh, that's an that's a beautiful symbolism, and it seems to infuse every part of Navajo weaving. 
every part. And it also represents the universe because when you sit at your loom, you're at, you, you are facing the universe because the, the loom represents um, the top is the sky bar. The bottom is the earth bar. You, we have one that is representative of day, which is for females. One is a representative of the male, which is the night. So, and then uh, our tension represents um, lightning and you know it's it's all the elements in the universe so basically when you sit at your loom you're looking at the universe and you're incorporating everything in there the forces of nature and you are also bounded by your environment if your rug stretches not stretches you know you can't control the environment so you have to be a good weaver to anticipate <laughs> these problems. So, you know, it, Navajo weaving teaches you a lot. A lot of people will see what I'm doing when I'm demonstrating. They go, and I hate this. They will say, oh, that looks very tedious. Oh. And I'm thinking, that's not true. You are forever um, trying, to, um, uh, trying to practice your harmony with the world. And that's not tedious. That's a learning experience or it's a teaching experience. So, you know, and, and I always try to be mindful of people who say that to me. Oh, that looks very tedious. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. no, but it's not tedious. It's life. <laughs> it's life, isn't it? That, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of wisdom there. And, you know, we're kind of running out of time here. But I want to thank you so much. For joining us today and sharing your experiences and your knowledge and your wisdom. And I know you and your sister Barbara have a full schedule ahead and we will be following your achievements with great interest. Thanks so much, Linda. Thank you. And Linda, I just have to say you are you have been a big part of our lives. Uh, without you, you know, those two books would not have existed. Um, you were responsible for us connecting with, with some of our elder weavers, um, and, you know, and we're so grateful for that because that put us on the, you know, on the forefront to do more, I think. And, and that was all due to you and Thrums. Well, you have really run with it. That's for sure. So <laughs> hey, you better get back to work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Good to see you. I let we need to get together again soon and yes. catch up. Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.